there anyone who's heard me before here at Artisan? Come on, make some noise. Uh, if you're new here, you've never heard uh, who this handsome black man is named Manny Arango. You never heard me wave at me, wave at me. Who's new? Come on, the church is growing. That's amazing. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, I got big news, and, and, and that big news is that on June 8th, 2024, I graduate with my doctorate. So I'm going to be Dr. Manny Arango, okay? June 8th, 2024. You guys can all come to my graduation. It's going to be awesome. Uh, and, and I told you that uh, with no context. Everybody say context. I told you that with no context. I told you that with no context on purpose. Uh, now I'll give you some context. Here's the context. Uh, my father took me to a crack house for the first time when I was five years old. My dad was incarcerated for 18 years. My dad was a Cuban immigrant to this country, immediately got tangled up with the wrong group of people, started selling drugs, then started uh, abusing drugs. My mother was pregnant at 12 years old with my oldest sister, gave birth at 13, was pregnant again at 14, gave birth at 15. All three of my aunts are prostitutes. All five of my uncles are alcoholics on my mother's side and everybody on my father's side is either in the drug game, dealing or using drugs. Oh, everybody in my family is bound and shackled and filled uh, with the power of a generational curse. I'm the first Arango to graduate from college. I'm the first Arango to get my master's degree. But on June 8th, 2024, I'll be the first Arango with a doctorate. I'm the first Arango to own property. I'm the first Arango to be wealthy. I'm the first Arango to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm the first Arango to have kids after marriage, not before marriage. I'm the first Arango to be functional and healed. And you see how the moment you hear that in context. You can appreciate what I'm accomplishing because you can appreciate the context. Oh, I don't know if you've ever uh, had the distinct honor of being taken out of context. Oh, come on. Can you relate? This is the most frustrating thing in the world to be taken out of context. Have you ever heard somebody quote something that you said to somebody else or maybe someone gossiped about you and then you heard what you said and you wanted to scream and shout? Yes, I did say that, but you don't know the context for why I said that, or where I said that, or how I said that. You don't understand the context. Recently, you know, sometimes I then make this next statement that I'm about to say, and people cheer as if it's a big good thing, but I have learned that actually it's a really stressful thing. I went viral recently on Instagram. Oh, got a video, yeah. I got a video that got over a million views on Instagram. And I, I've got, a, you know, a good amount of followers on social media. And so I went viral on social media and typically people cheer like, oh, that's amazing. And then I'm like, yeah, until you read the comments of the people who have something to say about what I said on social media. Oh man, actually uh, there's a clip, uh, uh, a clip and in the clip I'm talking about time. But the way that the clip got edited, uh, it, it doesn't say time on the clip. All it says is that there are four laws of sowing and reaping, that there you got to reap what you sow, you reap where you sow, you reap after you sow, and you reap more than you sow. Oh, I was at a church in South Carolina preaching about time, and I was telling all the men in the church, you don't just reap what you sow, you reap where you sow. So you can't sow all of your 
time at work and think that you're going to reap from your family. It doesn't work that way. You don't just reap what you sow, you reap where you sow. And you've got to not just manage money, you've got to manage your time. But the way that the clip got edited, oh, that wasn't what was on the clip. On the clip, it was just the four laws of sowing and reaping and people ripped me apart. Oh, look at this prosperity gospel preacher. I bet he took up an offering after this message. I can't believe this dude. I mean, just uh, comment after comment after comment. And by the time you get to millions of views, there's just thousands of comments of people who just think they know everything because they've got a little iPhone, you know, like, oh, look at this guy. And all I wanted to do was scream at every single person and say, you don't know the context of what I even said, you thumb thug. <laughs> you know, I'm like, say it to my face, you know, <laughs> meet me outside, you know. It's crazy how we be real bold behind a laptop. Context. We're living in a culture of clips, not context. We're living in a culture of comments, but not context. We're living in a culture where you understand the pain of being taken out of context. I understand the pain of being out of context. And if there's anybody who understands the pain and the frustration of being taken out of context, come on, it's God. Oh, God gets taken out of context all the time. I know you don't struggle with this in Blaine, Minnesota, but the crazy people I pastor back in Texas, you know, they always think God has told them something. You know what I mean? You know, God told me that that guy over there is going to be my husband. And I'm like, but did God tell you any context? <laughs> did God say anything that would give you some contextual clues for how to actually obey him? Oh, there's a verse here, Pastor Manny. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'm like, but did you put the verse in context? Context. There's entire denominations built on taking verses out of Context. There are millennials right now, young adults right now, deconstructing, and you think you're deconstructing your faith, but actually what you're deconstructing is a pastor's interpretation of verses that were taken out of context. And if you were to ever just do the work and actually figure out what God actually meant by what he said, instead of leaving the faith and throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you would realize that you don't need to deconstruct your faith. What you need to deconstruct is the tradition that a pastor indoctrinated you with. Oh, I want to know if there are any young people, young adults that are saying, you know what? I'm not going to deconstruct my faith. I'm actually just going to begin to put the Bible in context so that I can get an appreciation for what God actually said and what he meant by what he said. One of the best verses that gets taken out of context, I love this, is, this is you know, we're not gonna say anything controversial, this is fun. <laughs> you know, I love this uh, because uh, Paul says in one of his letters, it's, it's First Timothy actually specifically, women should not preach in church. Uh-uh, you better not have them women teaching. Don't you, they need to sit down. Okay, they need to sit down and be quiet. Okay, and entire denominations are created out of these passages of scripture. But if you were to study, you would know that Paul is talking to a pastor in Ephesus, and his name is Timothy. That Ephesus was actually a home 
of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That ancient wonder of the ancient world is a place called the Artemisium. What is the Artemisium? I'm so glad that you asked. The Artemisium is actually the temple of the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of fertility. She was the goddess of childbearing. She was the goddess of chastity. And Artemis, oh, she demanded that her followers, uh, she didn't go after the low-class poor women. Mm-mm-mm. She went after the high-status, wealthy women. And the way that you showed your allegiance to Artemis is you wore gold jewelry and you had your hair braided in a very, very particular pattern. And so when these women who had been indoctrinated by Artemis, they believed based on the heresy of Artemis that women were created first, then men were created. I love this because these women, they think that their status can transfer once they start coming to church. And they think that they can preach this heresy in church. And so Paul has to write them. And what does Paul say? He says, don't be deceived. Adam was created first, then Eve. Also, don't come in here rocking the braids. And that is not timeless. That doesn't mean that all my black sisters with box braids is in sin. What that means is that the women who were in Ephesus had braids and they were showing allegiance to a goddess named Artemis. And Paul is saying, hey, I don't want there to be confusion about who you actually follow. When you come into this church, when you pledge your allegiance to King Jesus, you actually need to not pledge allegiance in your physical uh, attire or wardrobe to anything else. And also, ooh, I want you to know that you'll be saved through your childbearing. This is a verse right out of 1943. Well, guess what? Artemis was the goddess of what? Childbearing, fertility, chastity. All these women were scared. They had come into the church. They had gotten saved. They had gotten rid of their braids and their jewelry. But man, they weren't having sex with their husbands. And they were scared of getting pregnant because they believed that it was Artemis that was going to protect them from dying in the middle of childbirth. And while they become Christians, they were still brainwashed according to the system of Artemis. And so they weren't having sex with their husbands and they weren't getting pregnant because they thought that if they got pregnant, Artemis would be angry with them and they would die in childbirth. So Paul says to them, don't you know you'll be saved by childbearing? This is not a passage to repress women. Oh no, this is not a passage to make women mute and muzzled and be quiet. This is a passage when placed in context that you realize that Paul is actually loving every single woman in the church. Oh, when you get into the nuance of Context, you'll realize that there's another place where Paul tells women to be quiet. Paul's got a habit telling women to be quiet. But when he does it in Corinth, he says this, hey, stop asking the preacher questions while they're preaching. Now see, in Corinth, he's not talking to high status women. In Corinth, he's talking to poor women. In Corinth, he's talking to women that probably got married around the age of 13, and they got married to men who are probably somewhere around the age of 35, double, sometimes triple their age. And when a man gets married to a teenage girl in the first century, Gentiles did not educate women past the age of 13. And so a husband had an incentive to keep his wife ignorant to keep her illiterate so that he could cheat on her and control all of the money. And so Paul writes to these women in 
Corinth, who are not the high status women of Ephesus. And he says to them, make sure you go home and ask your husbands to teach you the Bible. Oh, there was a group who left church upset that day. And it was not the women who got told to be quiet. Guess who was upset that day? The men who now had to take it upon themselves to educate their wives at home. They didn't want to educate their wives at home because they wanted their wives to stay ignorant. But Paul says, you're not loving your bride well. If you keep her in the dark, you better teach your wife at home so that when she comes to church, she can have an aptitude level to actually hear the sermon and digest what's going on. Isn't it crazy how the moment you learn some history and some language and some culture and put the Bible in context, the Bible starts to make all kinds of sense. But we think, uh-oh, I'm going to step on your toes. As long as I played worship music before I started reading my Bible, I should be able to understand it. Really? So you're saying you're 38 years old and you still want to read the Bible like you did when you was in high school? Oh, yeah, I'm stepping on your toes and coming for your life. Maybe you need some hermeneutical tools. Maybe, just maybe, you need like a Bible dictionary. Maybe it's worth the work. Maybe God is not a cheap date. That just because you showed up and played some Maverick City music and asked the Holy Spirit to talk to you, maybe, just maybe, the Bible's not just going to give up its goods just because you showed up to do your devotions. I know it's a crazy thought. But maybe the Bible is so holy that it's worth you doing some work to figure out the context of what God actually says and what he means by what he says. I need a good amen in this church today. Context. Context changes everything. Context makes you appreciate the fact that I'm getting a doctorate. Context, it, it, it makes you not just see a clip and assume you know what it means. Context, the context, context. It helps you to go, man, entire denominations have been built on passages of scripture that are just taken out of context. Context, 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 context is key. And we are gonna need some context in order to study the passage of scripture that I believe is my contribution to this builder series. Who's been encouraged by this series so far? By the way, I'm black. So that means I need you to like talk back to me, okay? Like say amen, okay? This ain't no library, it's a sanctuary. So like, can somebody say amen? Like, please. There we go, white people, let's go. <laughs> Any black folks in the room? Any black people? Any black? There we go, I think three black people, let's go. One for the Father, one for the Son, one for the Holy Ghost. We got three black people. Uh, for real, uh, I, I love all the white folks. Uh, and hey, I love my friend Sam and Renee Grasso. I love you guys so much. And uh, come on, can we honor your leaders? Can we honor your pastors? Love you guys. We're going to go to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to put Mark chapter 5 in context. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus runs into a man named Jairus. Everybody say Jairus. He runs into a man named Jairus. Jairus has a problem. Jairus has an issue. His daughter is on the verge of death. His daughter is sick. Now, one of the things that the text tells us is that Jairus is a synagogue leader. Jairus is a religious leader. Jairus was probably closely associated with Pharisees, okay? And what we know contextually about Jairus and the crew that he rolls with is they are not a fan of Jesus. However, how many people know that if you are in enough pain, you will put aside your opinions and you will go seek the person with power? Oh, I know some 
Baptist people who they don't believe in the Holy Ghost, but let their daughter be sick. They will roll up to a Pentecostal church and say, I don't I don't know all the tongue stuff y'all be doing, but I know I need healing, okay? Be in enough pain, get desperate enough, and you will leave your theology to the side and go find some power. I need a good amen in church. Jairus does not theologically line up with Jesus. He's probably theologically opposed to Jesus, but he has a problem. He has a problem that drives him to Jesus. Do you know that Jesus will capitalize on your problem so that you can come to him? How many witnesses in church today that said, yep, you know what? The reason I'm in church is because I had a problem with my marriage, and so I came looking for Jesus. I had a problem with my health, so I came looking for Jesus. I had a problem with my fight. Anybody, come on, a problem is what actually led you into the kingdom. Jairus comes to find Jesus. Jesus, I got a problem. We got to get to my house. My daughter is sick. On the way, get to the house. Don't you just love it? When you're in, when you are in a rush, that's when people want to drive slow. Jairus is in a rush. My girl's about to die. My daughter's about to die. You know, I can imagine Jairus in my head. He's just beeline right to the house. And you know, Jesus, just strolling. I can imagine Jairus is looking back like, Jesus, come on. And then all of a sudden, a woman enters into the story who's been sick for 12 years. Woman with the issue of blood. This seems like an interruption. It seems like a total interjection. I thought we were talking about Jairus and his daughter. I thought we were on our way to get the daughter some help. And now all of a sudden, the text talks about this woman who's got a problem that she's had for 12 years. She comes up behind Jesus, touches him, and now Jesus wants to break out into a conversation. Hey! Who touched me? The disciples are like, this is ridiculous. And socially awkward. Imagine being Jairus. You're like, wait a second. The woman got healed. You're good. Let's keep it moving. Why do we need to have a conversation with a lady? She got what she needed. She's good. Everything's fine. Let's keep going. She's like, no. Who touched me? This is like bratty Jesus, you know. Who touched me? I demand to know. Who touched me? Finally, the lady come forward. Ah, uh, it was me. And this is where we enter our text for the day. Mark chapter five. We can put it up on the screens. Mark chapter five. We'll start in verse 34, I believe. Mark chapter five, verse 34. It said, Jesus said to her, daughter. Can you say that with me? Daughter. Daughter, your faith has made, has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from, from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? This is our text for the day, and I'll tell you my, 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 my uh, title. You ready for my title? That's like 18 of y'all. You ready for my title? Come on, black people, let's go. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Stevie Wonder song, Isn't She Lovely? It's, it's an amazing song. It's an amazing song that gets taken out of all the time. It's an amazing song that we play at like weddings, especially like black weddings. You know, it's a good jam, you know, Isn't She Lovely? But if you actually do some hermeneutics, you begin to discover that Stevie Wonder wrote that song to his daughter. But we use it at weddings. Because we appropriate the original context and apply it to our new context. 
Isn't she lovely? Let's pray. God, we ask that by the end of this message today, we will see that your church is lovely, that your bride is lovely. When we say, isn't she lovely? God, we want the Holy Spirit to hear us say that and say, amen, the church is lovely. She's worth building. She's worth investing in. She's worth sacrificing for. She's worth tithing to. The church is lovely. God, we don't want anybody to leave today saying that guest speaker did a good job. We want every single person to leave today saying the Holy Spirit spoke to me in a unique and a powerful way. God, I have a sermon, but you've got a message. So God, I ask that you would do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And we all sit together. Amen. 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 I I love this because we're going to discover some. Oh, come on. You're catching on. Some context. I'm going to teach you three things that context lets us know about this story with Jairus, Jesus, and the woman with the issue of blood. Here's the first thing that context tells us. First thing that context tells us is that in the modern world, with modern medicine and modern technology and modern doctors, this woman actually could have lived with this hemorrhaging, bleeding menstrual issue for 12 long years. But she does not live with modern medicine or modern hospitals or modern doctors. Oh no, she's in the first century. And in all the research that I did about this woman and a menstrual hemorrhaging, bleeding problem, her prognosis from every medical professional would have been this. You've got 12 to 18 months to live. your affairs in order if you don't get cured or healed from this menstrual hemorrhaging bleeding issue within the next 12 to 18 months ma'am you will die but how many people know she lived a little longer than 12 to 18 months baby she got into year two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven and twelve with a problem that should have killed her in 12 to 18 months and there are some christians that will only worship god on year 12 when he heals you But I've got a sneaky suspicion that I'm in Blaine, Minnesota with some Christians who know that even though I'm not healed on year three, that the same God that will heal me on year 12 is keeping me alive on year three. And I'm not going to reserve my praise for when it's all done and perfect and put together. Oh, no, I worship God in the middle of the valley. I worship God in the middle of difficulty. I worship God even though I'm not healed yet because the same God that requires worship of me when I do get healed is requiring worship of me in the middle of the diagnosis, in the middle of the problem, in the middle of the obstacle right now. I may not be healed, but I'm still alive. Oh, I want to prophesy that over somebody's life. You have been so angry and disappointed that God hasn't healed you, but you have yet to appreciate the fact that God has kept you alive. God may not have done what you wanted him to do, but I've got news for you today. He's not your genie. He is your God. And even when he doesn't do what you want him to do, he's doing what you need him to do. I need a good amen in church. Context. Context. Context tells us uh, that this woman probably knew Jairus because Jairus is a synagogue leader. If you read Leviticus, you learn that it's the religious leader's job to excommunicate anybody from the community who's got leprosy or a skin issue or a bleeding issue or women that are on their menstrual cycle actually 
It's Jairus's job. And, you know, come on, I, I've been a pastor all my life. And, and, you know, there's just like special moments in church. No. Like artisan under lights. Good day. You know, special moment, you know, big deal. I've been in church. And, you know, as a pastor, sometimes you're like, man, you know, Christmas service is going to be great. But every good church has like three crazy people in it. The better the church, the, the more crazy people sometimes, you know? It's like for every like 400 people, you need like one more crazy person, you know? The church just, you know, attracts the crazy sometimes, you know? And uh, it's, it's a problem when the church doesn't know these people are crazy. But as long as everybody kind of knows, get Nancy Lowe off her rocker, you know? We just all kind of watch out, you know? And sometimes as a pastor, you're like, man, big day coming up in church, you know? If crazy Mary doesn't come, I won't be mad. She, she could stay home this week. I can imagine Jairus. They're like, Jesus is in our town. Big deal. Wait, isn't that the lady I kicked out of the synagogue? Why is she here? And this actually brings context to Jesus' words. Because here's what Jesus now says. Hey, I've got to talk to this lady, but the conversation is not for her. The conversation with the lady is actually for who? Jairus. So Jesus uses a very specific word when talking to the lady. Guess what he calls her? Daughter. Jairus comes to Jesus because Jairus has an issue with his daughter. In the middle of trying to fix Jairus's problem, Jesus realized that Jairus's problem is not his daughter. Jairus's problem is the daughter that he's kicked out of the synagogue and been legalistic about, oh, I pray that Artisan Church is the kind of church where we say, you got an issue of blood, you're welcome here. Oh, you got a drug addiction, you're welcome here. Oh, you still getting your life together, you're welcome here. Oh, you're a little messy right now, you're welcome here. You smoke some cigarettes sometimes and you stressed, hey, in a couple years you not, but for right now you are, but you are welcome here. And we are not gonna gyrus you. We are not gonna be so legalistic about a standard that we miss out on loving you, the person. It's okay that God is still working on you. There's room for you here. So here's what Jesus does. Hey, daughter. Wink, wink. Oh, Jairus can hear me. Because Jairus is so concerned with his daughter that he has forgot to care about thy daughter. You know, this is a principle. You could be so concerned with building your kingdom that you never build God's kingdom. You could be so concerned with building your house, you never build God's house. So concerned with your bride, you never care about Jesus' bride. This actually gets us to the crux of the text. That as we build, God says, if you build this thing for me, I will always go to your house and heal your daughter. And I will always build your thing if you prioritize building my thing. I want to declare over your life today, the best way to build your thing is to actually stop focusing on your thing and to prioritize God's thing and to say, hey, God, I know that I've got a daughter that I care about, but let 
let me care about your daughter real quick because church is a family. The reason that 13-year-old Manny with a drug-addicted father and a teenage mother could come into a church and get healed is not just because Jesus was there, but there were deacons there who taught me how to drive, elders of the church who taught me how to budget, pastors in the church who taught me how to buy real estate, men of God and women of God in the church who cared about my life. And God says, I'll take the lonely and I'll put them in families. Do you want to know what church is? This is the place where people from broken lives and broken pasts come and they cross-pollinate with people who are whole and healed and set free and delivered. And God uses the gyruses of the world to care about his daughters. I need a good amen and church. We're building a church, building family, church. This is the thing that we're building. This is personal for me. And it's personal when it comes to tithing. Because I travel a lot, okay? Like I'm on, I think I'll end the year with like 73 speaking engagements this year. So I've preached 48 out of 52 Sundays this year. I'm in a different city, different state every single week. Every single Sunday, I travel a lot, which means there are a group of guys that live in Dallas that always are at my house doing random stuff for my wife. Happens all the time. Literally, I was, my wife got into a car wreck. We, she had to go pick up, uh, she had to go drop off the car and she didn't have a car to get back home. And I sent one of the guys from our ministry team, hey, Matt, just go meet my wife and she's got to drop off the car, bring it back home. That's all you got to do. It'll take 15 minutes of your time. And there's just guys, there's one guy named Jesse, another guy named Matt, another guy named Sam. Imagine if I just said to all of them, hey guys, I'm just going to go ahead and give you $1,000 every single month. All you got to do is make sure that 10% of this goes to Tia. Imagine if that's what I said. And imagine a couple months go by, I check in with Tia. Hey, have Matt, Sam, or Jesse like been by the house? And imagine if she gives me a report and she says, every month without fail, Matt sends me a check for $100. He never comes by. He doesn't serve. He doesn't volunteer. But that check is here every time. $100. Exact. Legalistic. No more, no less, $100. He doesn't volunteer. And he's never changed Theo's diaper. But the $100 is in the check in the mail every week, every month. Okay, what about Jesse? Oh, I haven't seen Jesse in months, but he cashed at me $25 one time. I don't know why. And then one time he zilled me like 30 bucks. I don't know. He's just kind of randomly sending money. And I'm like, but it's never like at least $100? No, definitely not. It's just like, you know, he doesn't believe in tithing, just tipping. Just random acts of kindness, you know? Okay, what about Sam? Man, Sam shows up with groceries randomly? Man, Sam like took Theo to school a couple days this week. Oh man, Sam's been so helpful. And Sam, like, he 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 sends a check for a hundred bucks every pop, but then like he just randomly like sticks cash in Theo's pocket. Theo's my son. He just, I don't know, like, Sam, man, guess what I would do? I would take all the money I've been giving Jesse and I'd give it to Sam. Because how much is given, much is required. When we talk about tithing, 
We're not talking about giving to a nonprofit 501c3. We don't give because it's tax deductible. We give because this is the bride of Jesus and she's lovely. This is the thing that Jesus is building. This is the thing that Jesus gave his life to establish. Jesus gave his life to remove the work of the enemy, to make sure that you don't spend eternity in hell. And guess what? To establish his church. This is not just a building. This isn't just an institution. This isn't just like some nonprofit organization. This is not institutional for Jesus. It's personal for Jesus. You know, there's a lot of millennials who, you know, not here in Blaine, Minnesota, the crazy people that I have to pastor. If you ever bump into them, you'll be empathetic. That's why I'm telling you this. They have this crazy idea. I've got my own relationship with God. You know what I'm saying? Me and God, like, we cool. Did you go to a church? No, I don't need no church. I'm, I just got a relationship with God. Do you volunteer at a church? I'll, are you accountable to a pastor? Do you tithe? I don't do the church thing. You know what I'm saying? I don't do church. I, just, I don't need no middleman. I just need God. Oh, what Bible verse you got for that one, bro? First idiot chapter three, verse eight. Cause let me be very, very clear. If you came up to me and said, Pastor Manny, I love you. Wow. You're so charismatic. And you know the Bible and like, oh, you're getting your doctorate and you're so wise. I would love for you to like mentor me and disciple me. And imagine I said to you, yeah, sure. I got time. Like, let's do it. And then you said, but I don't like your wife. She bald and ashy. And she got an attitude. I don't even like her. I don't like her. But I want a relationship with you. But I don't like her. I would say to you, no good and reasonable and healthy husband would ever entertain a relationship with a person that does not want a relationship with his bride. It is foolish and heretical to think to yourself that you can have a relationship with God and bypass his bride called the church. Jesus has something to say about the church. And what he has to say is, isn't she lovely? Is she perfect? No. But is she mine? Yes. Is she flawless? No. But is she mine? Yes. Is she, is she impeccable? Oh, does she make mistakes all the time? Do leaders fail? Yeah. And we got a whole lot of millennials leaving church because the pastor cheated on their wife. Let me be very, very clear. The reason I'm in church is not because the pastor is faithful to his wife. Here's why I'm in church because Jesus was faithful to his bride. And as long as Jesus is faithful to his bride, guess where my happy hip's gonna be every Sunday? In church. I'm gonna be tithing, giving, and volunteering. Why? Because my faith is not in a person holding a microphone. My faith is in a God who sent his son for the remission of my sins and has made church non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. Well, you know what I'm saying? I just church hurt. Then guess what, baby? When I went to North Carolina, there's this interesting thing. My allergies started going crazy because there's all these trees in North Carolina. And the locals, the locals was like, oh, you need some honey. And I was like, why do I need honey? And they were like, because you are allergic to all the pollination that's going on, all the pollen. And the bees have pollinated with all this stuff. And the, ain't it crazy how the same thing that makes you allergic is the same thing that heals you? If you've been church hurt, guess what you need to be church healed? The only place that can heal you is church. 
if you've been church hurt, you're not going to be healed at the Boys and Girls Club, homie. If you've been hurt by church, you need to be healed by church. You was hurt by church, and guess what you need to do? Leave the crazy church that you was at and come to a healthy church. You don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You need to walk into a functional, not perfect, but amazing church with vision, with grace, and with truth, where the spirit of Jesus is alive, and you need to re-engage your love for the bride of Christ. Because until you prioritize his bride, he will not be prioritizing you. Until you prioritize his daughter, he's not going to prioritize your daughter. Until you prioritize his house, he's not going to prioritize your house. So reconciliation has to happen between Jairus and the woman. And what happens, here's what context also tells us that this is what's called a Markin intercalation. I learned that word in my doctorate. And you know what I'm saying? I'm, I've been, I just got to drop that on you. What is an intercalation? Well, the, the layman's term for that is a sandwich. It means that Mark, all throughout the gospel of Mark, specifically and intentionally sandwiches things together so that you can begin to interpret the outside layers based on what's inside. It's like a sandwich. You got bread, you got meat, you got bread. And so Jesus, he curses the fig tree and then goes to the temple, then sees the fig tree again. This is in the gospel of Mark. And what? The fig tree is a symbol for the temple. So what's inside the sandwich begins to interpret the outside of the sandwich. Well, the woman with the issue of blood has been sick for 12 years. Jairus's daughter is what? 12 years old, Mark interweaves these stories because he wants you to know that your healing is completely dependent upon the healing of the people around you. The world that we live in is a world of hyper-individualism, that you've got to find your identity on your own and find your purpose on your own. Let me push back against that, that God does not advocate for the hyper-individuality that we are sick with in our culture. God says, if you want to know your identity, you become a part of the group. And the group begins to help you figure out your identity. This rubs against the grain of everything we've been taught because we love self-help. We love discovering my purpose. What's my purpose? Can I tell you what your purpose is? Every Christian has the same purpose. Build the kingdom, build the church, expand the kingdom, grow the church, glorify God, Love Jesus, be full of the power of the Holy Ghost. But we're obsessed. My Myers-Briggs is this, and my Enneagram is this, and my Strength Finders is this. That's a lot of you, homie. It's a lot of you. You've bought into the hyper-individualized identity cult, which is our current culture. You want to know why I started preaching? Not because I thought it was my gift. My youth pastor looked at me and was like, you got the gift to preach. And I was like, really? He's like, yep, here's a mic. I was lost in sin. Two years in college, just lost, just wayward, prodigal. Went home for the weekend. I had a black church mama. She could just see sin. And would say it. You're like, you look like sin. Millennials, I'm going to step on your toes. We got a word for that. When people say stuff like that, we're like, I'm offended, which is code for you're convicted. But you don't have the spiritual maturity to just admit you're convicted. So your guard goes up and you're like, I'm offended. And now I'm church hurt. 
Well, maybe you're just wrong because she was in sin. But, I mean, but what is sin, though? Got it. If you can do spiritual acrobats to make it not sin, then you won't be wrong. But all you've done is twist the scriptures and taken them out of context so that you can keep your sin. Because the Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from your Bible. You can't have both. You can't have the truth of God's word and love idols at the same time. Doesn't work that way. So I was at my, home, at my mom's house for the weekend. I was in the living room. And uh, I'm just lost. I away, just walked away from God, just lost. My mother goes to her bedroom. She grabs her journal. And she looks at me and says, you know why I'm not stressed out about you right now? I know you're drinking and smoking and this girl you're dating is crazy and your friends are all crazy. She's like, guess what? I'm not stressed. Opened up her journal. She said, when I was three months pregnant with you, God told me you'd be a prophet to the nations. When I was four months pregnant with you, God told me that there was a preaching gift on your life. When I was five months pregnant with you, God told me that if I dedicated you to the Lord, that he would use you for his kingdom and for his church and for his purposes. I didn't come to learn my identity by discovering it on a mountain somewhere with trees in a forest. No, I discovered my identity because a youth pastor began to speak life into me and my mother began to speak life into me. You're on a search and a quest for your identity, then get in community you're in a quest for identity, then stop going off by yourself and actually plug in to the group called church. God doesn't even make covenants with individuals. He makes covenants through individuals for the group. He makes covenants with Abraham for who? The nation of Israel. He makes a covenant with David for who? All of David's family. God doesn't step out of the group to just have a solo relationship with you. That's American, not biblical. That's Western, not biblical. The Bible says, you wanna figure out your identity? Commit to artisan. You want God to bless you? Commit to artisan. You wanna learn about your personal strengths? Commit to the group. When you commit to the group, the group begins to hear from the Holy Ghost. Like in the book of Acts, they're all gathered in the church, and the Holy Spirit begins to tell the church, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of missionary service. You see how the Holy Ghost doesn't go talk to Paul and Barnabas. Oh, there's so many people who are like, I have a call. Really? You have a call? Then why didn't God tell them to us? No one can appreciate the call of God on my life. Oh, really? So God just talks to you? They don't talk to none of us? So your God is just an individualized God? He's not the God of the Bible? That can't heal Jairus' daughter until the woman with the issue of blood is healed? So you don't believe in the interconnected reality that we are all bound up with each other. The lie from the enemy is called independence. Guess what the Bible teaches? Interdependence. That I'm not independent of you. We are a body. And I can't say that the toe doesn't matter just because I'm the eye. No, no, no. When I begin to build you, God begins to build me. Yeah, I may not have kids, but I'm going to serve in the kids ministry. Why? Because I'm a part of the group. Yeah. You know what? How dare I come to a church and never volunteer? 
That means I'm a consumer, not a contributor. And I want to be blessed individually. Therefore, I've got to join the collective effort and make sure that the group is good. I need a good amen in this Presbyterian church today.